Little Women, Chapter 12, Camp Lawrence. Beth was postmistress. For being most at home, she could attend to it regularly and dearly liked the daily task of unlocking the little door and distributing the mail. One July day, she came in with her hands full and went about the house, leaving letters and parcels. Here's your posy, mother. Lori never forgets that, she said, putting the nosegay in the vase that stood in Marmy's corner. Miss March, one letter and a glove, continued Beth, delivering the articles to her sister, who sat near her mother sewing. Why, I left a pair over there, and here's only one, said Meg, looking at the gay cotton glove. I hate to have odd gloves. Never mind. The other may be found. My letter is only a translation of the German song I wanted. I think Mr. Brooke did it, for this isn't Lori's writing. Two letters for Dr. Joe, a book, and a funny old hat which covered the whole post office stuck inside. Stuck outside, said Beth, laughing, as she went to the study where Joe sat writing. What a sly fellow Lori is. I said I wished bigger hats were the fashion because I burn my face every hot day. He said, why mind the fashion? Wear a big hat and be comfortable. I said I would if I had one, and he has sent this to try me. I'll wear it for fun and show him I don't care for the fashion. Joe hung the antique broad brim, broad brim on a bust of Play-Doh and read her letters. One from her mother made her cheeks glow and her eyes fill. My dear, I write a little word to tell you with how much satisfaction I watch your efforts to control your temper. You say nothing about your trials, failures, or successes, and think perhaps that no one sees them but the friend whose help you daily ask, if I may trust the well-worn cover of your guidebook. I, too, have seen them all and heartily believe in the sincerity of your resolution since it begins to bear fruit. Go on, dear, patiently and bravely, and always believe that no one sympathizes more tenderly with you than your loving mother. That does me no good, cried Joe. Oh, Marmy, I do try. Or, that does me good, cried Joe. Oh, Marmy, I do try. I will keep on trying and not get tired, since I have you to help me. She opened her other letter. In a big, dashing hand, Lori wrote, Dear Joe, what ho? Some English girls and boys are coming to see me tomorrow, and if it's fine, I'm going to pitch my tent in Longmeadow and row up the whole crew to lunch in croquet. They're nice people. Brooke will go to keep us boys steady, and Kate Vaughn to play propriety for the girls. I want you all to come. Don't bother about rations. I'll see to that and everything else. Only do come. There's a good fellow. In a tearing hurry, yours ever, Lori. Here's richness, cried Joe, flying in to tell the news to Meg. Of course we can go, mother. It will be such a help to Lori, for I can row, and Meg to see to the lunch and the children be useful. I hope the Vaughns are not fine grown-up people. Do you know anything about them? asked Meg. Only that there are four of them. Kate is older than you, Fred and Frank, twins about my age, and a little girl, Grace, who is nine or ten. Lori knew them abroad and liked the boys. Let's fly around and do double duty today so we can play tomorrow with free minds. When the son peeped into the girls' room early next morning to promise them a fine day, he saw a comical sight. Amy had put a clothespin on her nose to uplift the offending feature. Joe woke first and roused all her sisters by a hearty laugh at Amy's ornament. Soon there was a lively bustle in both houses. Beth kept reporting what went on next door. There goes the man with the tent, she called. I see Mrs. Barker. 
doing up the lunch in a hamper in a great basket. Now Mr. Lawrence is looking up at the sky and the weathercock. I wish he could go too. There's Lori looking like a sailor. Here's a carriage full of people, a tall lady, a little girl, and two dreadful boys. One is lame, poor thing. He's got a crutch. Lori didn't tell us that. Be quick, girls. It's getting late. Why, there is Ned Moffat, I do declare. Look, Meg, isn't that the man who bowed to you one day when we were shopping? So it is. How queer that he should come. I thought he was at the mountains. There's Sally. I'm glad she got back in time. Oh, Joe, you're not going to wear that awful hat. It's too absurd, remonstrated Joe, as remonstrated Meg, as Joe tied down with a red ribbon the broad-brimmed, old-fashioned leghorn Lori had sent for a joke. I just will for its capital, so shady and light and big. With that, Joe marched away, and the rest followed, all looking their best in their summer suits, with happy faces under the jaunty hat brims. Lori ran to meet and present them to his friends. Meg was grateful to see that Miss Kate, though twenty, was dressed with simplicity, and she was much flattered by Mr. Ned's assurances that he came especially to see her. Beth decided the lame boy was not dreadful, but gentle, and she would be kind to him. Amy found Grace a well-mannered, merry little person, and after staring dumbly at one another for a few minutes, they suddenly became very good friends. Tents, lunch, and croquet set, and croquet set having been sent on beforehand, the party soon embarked, and the two boats pushed off together, leaving Mr. Lawrence waving his hat on the shore. Laurie and Joe rowed one boat, Mr. Brooke and Ned the other. In the second boat, Meg was face to face with the two men who admired the prospect. Mr. Brooke was a grave, silent young man with handsome brown eyes and a pleasant voice. Meg liked his quiet manners and considered him a walking encyclopedia of useful knowledge. He never talked to her much, but he looked at her a great deal, and she felt sure he did not regard her with aversion. Ned, being in college, of course, put on all the airs which freshmen think it is their duty to assume. Sally Gardner was absorbed in keeping her white piquet dress clean and chattering with Fred, who kept Beth in constant terror by his pranks. It was not far to Longmeadow, but the tent was pitched and the wickets down by the time they arrived, a pleasant green field with three wide-spreading oaks in the middle and a smooth strip of turf for croquet. "'Welcome to Camp Lawrence,' said the young host, as they landed with exclamations of delight. "'Brooke is commander-in-chief. I am commissary-general. "'The other fellows are staff officers, and you, ladies, are company. "'The tent is for your especial benefit, and that oak is your drawing-room. "'This is the mess-room, and the third is the camp kitchen. "'Now let's have a game before it gets hot, and then we'll see about dinner.' "'Frank, Beth, Amy, and Grace sat down to watch the game played by the other eight. "'Mr. Brooke chose Meg.' Kate and Fred. Laurie took Sally, Joe, and Ned. The English people played well, but the Americans played better and contested every inch of ground. Joe and Fred had several skirmishes and once narrowly escaped high words. Joe was through the last wicket and had missed the stroke, which failure ruffled her a great deal. Fred was close behind her, and his turn came before hers. He gave a stroke. His ball hit the wicket, and stopped an inch on the wrong side. No one was very near, and running up to examine, he gave a sly nudge with his toe, which put it an inch on the right side. I'm through, 
Now, Miss Joe, I'll settle you and get in first, cried the young settlement gentleman, swinging his mallet for another blow. You pushed it. I saw you. It's my turn now, said Joe sharply. Upon my word, it didn't move. It rolled a bit, perhaps, but that's allowed. So stand off, please, and let me have a go at the stake. We don't cheat in America, but you can if you choose, cried Joe angrily. Yankees are a great deal more tricky, everybody knows. There you go, returned Fred, croqueting her ball far away. Joe opened her lips to say some rude thing, but checked herself in time, colored up to her forehead, and stood a minute, hammering down a wicket with all her might, while Fred hit the stake and declared himself out with much exultation. She went off to get her ball and was a long time finding it among the bushes, but she came back looking cool and quiet and waited her turn patiently. It took several strokes to regain the place she had lost, and when she got there, the other side had nearly won, for Kate's ball was the last one and lay near the stake. By George, it's all up with us. Goodbye, Kate. Miss Joe owes me one, so you are finished, cried Fred excitedly. Yankees have a trick of being generous to their enemies, said Joe, with a look that made the lad redden, especially when they beat them, she added, as leaving Kate's ball untouched, she won the game by a clever stroke. Laurie threw up his hat, then remembered it wouldn't do to exult over the defeat of his guests. He whispered to his friend, good for you, Joe. He did cheat. I saw him. We can't tell him so, but he won't do it again. Take my word for it. Meg drew her aside under pretense of pinning up a loose braid and said approvingly, It was dreadfully provoking, but you kept your temper, and I'm so glad, Joe. Don't praise me, Meg, for I could box his ears this minute. I should certainly have boiled over if I hadn't stayed among the nettles until I got my rage under enough to hold my tongue. It's simmering now, so I hope he'll keep out of my way, returned Joe, biting her lips as she glowered at Fred from under her big hat. Time for lunch, said Mr. Brooke, looking at his watch. Commissary General, will you make the fire and get water while Miss March, Miss Sally, and I spread the table? Who can make good coffee? Joe can, said Meg, glad to recommend her sister. So Joe, feeling that her late lessons in cookery were to do her honor, went to preside over the coffee pot while the children collected dry sticks and the boys made a fire and got water from a spring nearby. Miss Kate sketched and Frank talked to Beth, who is making little mats of braided rushes to serve as plates. The commander-in-chief and his aides soon spread the tablecloth with an inviting array, prettily decorated with green leaves. Joe announced the coffee was ready, and everyone settled themselves to a hearty meal. A very merry lunch it was, for everything seemed fresh and funny, and frequent peals of laughter startled a venerable horse who fed nearby. There's salt in here if you prefer it, said Laurie, as he handed Joe a saucer of berries. Thank you. I prefer spiders, she replied, fishing up two unwary little ones, which had gone into a creamy death. How dare you remind me of that horrid dinner party when yours is so nice in every way, added Joe, and they both laughed. I had an uncommonly good time that day, and I haven't got over it yet. This is no credit to me, you know. I don't do anything. It's you and Meg and Brooke who made it go, and I'm no end obliged to you. What shall we do after lunch? asked Laurie. Have games till it's cooler. I brought authors, and I dare say Miss Kate knows something new and nice. Go and ask her. She's company, and you ought to stay with her more. Aren't you company, too? I thought she'd suit Brooke, but he keeps talking to Meg. Miss Kate did know several, several new games. 
and they adjourn to the drawing room to play rigmarole. One person begins a story, Kate explained, any nonsense you like and tells as long as he pleases, only taking care to stop short at some exciting point when the next one takes it up and does the same. It's very funny when well done. Please start it, Mr. Brooke, Kate commanded. Lying on the grass at the feet of the two young ladies, Mr. Brooke obediently began the story, with the handsome brown eyes steadily fixed on the sunshiny river. "'What a piece of nonsense we have made!' exclaimed Sally after they had laughed over their story. "'With practice, we might do something quite clever. Do you know truth?' "'What is it?' asked Fred." Why, you pile up your hands, choose a number, and draw out it in turn. The person who draws at the number has to answer truly any questions put to by the rest. It's great fun. Let's try it, said Joe, who liked new experiments. Miss Kate and Mr. Brooke, Meg and Ned declined. But Fred, Sally, Joe, and Lori piled and drew. The lot fell to Lori. Who are your heroes? asked Joe. Grandfather and Napoleon. Which lady do you think here is prettiest? asked Sally. Margaret. Which do you like best? From Fred. Joe, of course. What silly questions you ask! And Joe gave a disdainful shrug as the rest laughed at Laurie's matter-of-fact tone. Try again. Truth isn't a bad game, said Fred. It's a very good one for you, retorted Joe. His turn came next. Let's give it to him, whispered Laurie to Joe, who nodded and asked at once. Didn't you cheat at croquet? Well, yes, a little bit. Good said Laurie, as Joe nodded to Fred as a sign that peace was declared. I think truth is a silly game, she said. Let's have a sensible game of authors to refresh our minds. Ned, Frank, and the little girls joined in this, and while it was on, the three elders sat at part talking. Miss Kate took out her sketch again, and Margaret watched her while Mr. Brooke lay on the grass with a book, which he did not read. Did the German song suit, Miss March? he inquired. Oh, yes, it was very sweet, and I'm much obliged to whoever translated it for me. Meg's face brightened as she spoke. I don't read German very well. Here is Schiller's Mary Stewart, Mary Stewart and a tutor who loves to teach, and Mr. Brooke laid his book on her lap with a smile. It's so hard, I'm afraid to try, said Meg gratefully, but she obediently followed the long blade which her new tutor used to point with read slowly and timidly, unconsciously making poetry of the hard words by the soft intonation of her musical voice. Down the page went the green guide, and presently, forgetting her listener in the beauty of the sad scene, Meg read as if alone, giving a little touch of tragedy to the words of the unhappy queen. If she had seen the brown eyes then, she would have stopped short, but she never looked up, and the lesson was not spoiled for her. "'Very well, indeed,' said Mr. Brooke as she paused, ignoring her many mistakes. "'I only wish I liked teaching as you do,' Meg said. "'I think you would if you had Laurie for a pupil. "'I shall be very sorry to lose him next year,' said Mr. Brooke. "'Going to college, I suppose?' Meg's lips in the que asked the question, but her eyes added. "'And what becomes of you?' "'Yes, it's high time he went, for he is ready. "'As soon as he is off, I shall turn soldier. I am needed.' "'I'm glad of that,' exclaimed Meg. "'I should think every young man would want to go, "'though it is hard for the mothers and sisters who stay at home,' she added sorrowfully. "'I have neither, and very few friends who care whether I live or die,' said Mr. Brooke rather bitterly. "'Laurie and his grandfather would care a great deal, "'and we should all be very sorry to have any harm happen to you,' said Meg heartily. "'Thank you. That sounds pleasant,' and Mr. Brooke looked cheerful again. 
an impromptu circus, fox, and geese, and an amicable game of croquet finished the afternoon. At sunset, the tent was struck, hampers packed, wickets pulled up, boats loaded, and the whole party floated down the river, singing at the top of their voices.